0: Thanks for tuning into my new show, Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. I'm Steve Ray, author of the book, How to Get U.S. Market Ready. And in my previous podcast, I shared some of the lessons I've learned from 30 years in the wine and spirits business, helping brands enter and grow in the U.S. market. This series will be dedicated to the personalities who have been working in the Italian wine sector in the U.S., their experiences, challenges, and personal stories. I'll uncover the roads that they walked, shedding light on current trends, business strategies, and their unique brands. So, thanks for listening in, and let's get to the interview. Hi, this is Steve Ray, and welcome to this week's edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. My guest this week is Jeff Carroll, who is general manager of Avalara, and you'll find out a little bit more about that in a minute, but uh, Jeff, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks a lot for having me, Steve. I'm happy to be here.
0: Give us a little background on you and how you came to be here.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I I've been doing effectively alcohol compliance software for about sixteen years. So coincidentally, I I actually kind of stumbled into the opportunity to work with Six Eight Eight Solutions, which we eventually changed our name to Ship Compliant in May of two thousand and five. And that happened to be the month that the Grand Home versus Heald Supreme Court decision came down. So that was fortuitous timing. And was with, with Ship Compliant for 11 years. It was sold to Sobos in 2015. I left in 2016. And later on in 2017, I joined Complete and Rachel Ray at Complete and was there for about, I guess, a little over a year and 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 then we eventually sold complete to to Avalera. Really good fit because Avalera is a, just a really great software company with scalable and and robust technology and Complete had been in business in in the Paso area doing wine compliance really for about 20 plus years. So putting those two companies together ended up being a really nice combination.
0: So now you're the general manager of Avalera and you're the guy who has all the answers when it comes to, can I ship this product to this state? Or if not you, the system that Avalara, or service that Avalara provides, that that's basically it. But let's um, talk a little bit about history because some of the people listening might not know the significance of Granholm. We <laughs> we all do. So put that into perspective and then, then um, and also reference the Supreme Court. I just saw a headline the other day, ducking the issue. That was the headline. Supreme Court ducks sh- direct shipping issue. And then news today that Iowa has just approved uh, retailer shipping into Iowa. So
1: okay yeah I will try to connect <laughs> all those I'll try to connect all those dots. So right so in, in in 2005 you had the Grand Home Supreme Court decision. I mean you know I think the wine industry really has been working at the direct shipping issue for roughly 30 years with with a purposeful strategy. Right. And that strategy included legislation, right, lobbying states to change laws. It included consumer advocacy, right, through Free the Grapes. And I will disclose I'm on the board of, of Free the Grapes. Um, and then also litigation. The, there was a, um, a group that, that I think has, has been basically disbanded called Coalition for Free Trade. And that and they took a, a litigation strategy and had a successful campaign that resulted in the Supreme Court decision that basically said that states had to treat businesses even-handedly. Right? You couldn't allow an in-state business to sh- in, in in the case of Grand Home, it was specifically about wineries in Michigan and New York. You couldn't allow wineries to in-state wineries to ship to consumers in New York but prohibit out-of-state wineries from shipping into New York. So a lot of people thought that changed everything overnight. It, it really didn't, but what it did is it became a catalyst for states to revisit their laws. And um, you saw from 2005 until today, really, just a flood of legislative activity where all these states are creating these systems that allow for direct shipping from wineries.
0: Let me, let me yeah interrupt you. So the the uh, Grand Home thing that was the point that it was uh, relative to a domestic winery and did not, or is known to now to not include retailers. And as we all know, there's a Grand Home was about wineries and not retailers. And that's kind of the area that at least I'm most interested in because we're talking about an Im- imported wine from from Italy. So, I'm sorry, go on. I just wanted to clarify that.
1: Yeah, no, that's a good point. and And I think that that's a, a point of 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 much debate, right, as to whether grand home was was specifically limited to wineries
0: or whether it's right, because they didn't actually say that, but that's the interpretation, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and,
1: first, and, no, and I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a constitutional lawyer, right? so I, I only go so far, but but that was a topic of of much debate. And that's where to your earlier question, this whole Tennessee wine decision from a couple of years ago comes into play is even though that case wasn't directly about direct shipping, it was more about, I think, total Wine and more and whether or not they could get a license in Tennessee and, and their residency requirements. It did provide a little bit of clarity, um, or at least most people thought it provided clarity about whether or not these principles of Grand Home apply to other tiers. Like the retail tier and wholesale tier.
0: so so, in this case, it was that you had to be the entity had to be a resident of the state in order to get a retail license to uh, build and run a liquor store. Is that about it?
1: Right. And whether or not that was constitutional, correct.
0: okay. <laughs> and so there's been a, a, there's been a lot of back and forth let, let me back up a bit uh, we were in the middle of connecting the dots and I interrupted you but two other points you had mentioned free the grapes which was an interesting organization really basically pushing for retailers to be allowed to ship interstate or compete you know, in, in the modern world that, that we live in. I'm talking just post-2000, not necessarily, you know, uh, post-COVID. There's also an organization called NAWR, National Association of Wine Retailers, headed by Tom Work, who you know quite well. And in fact, one of the things we were talking about, you did a, a webinar, I guess, with him a couple of weeks ago, which I thought was brilliant and interesting. Tell us a little about Tom and your association with him.
1: Yeah, no, I've known Tom for a long time. And Tom Tom works Several hats. NAWR is is one of the main hats. He's also a prolific blogger on the fermentation um, wine blog, and he also does communications. Um, and so, I've worked with him in various capacities over the year. And you know, we I think I think we're both kind of industry observers, and 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 like to chat about what's going on in the industry. And and he's got a lot going on right now with NAWR. And and you know, so following that Tennessee wine decision um, you know they, they've also pursued a litigation strategy um, and you've actually seen some states and and some circuits actually go seemingly go against what the Supreme Court provided in the Tennessee wine case and 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 then they've tried to appeal that a couple times to the Supreme Court unsuccessfully they don't yet have what's called a circuit split um, and and I think that the Supreme Court, tea leave readers would, would say that's usually the most helpful way to to get a case taken up. But they'd like to have this question settled once and for all.
0: So define that term, circuit split.
1: Oh, yeah. So like, you know, there's, I think, what, nine circuits around the country that's, that are made up of multiple states, where you, a case escalates first to a circuit court before it before it gets to the Supreme Court. And again, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm a little bit out of my depth. But if you have the, uh, uh, an opinion in the First Circuit and an opinion in the Ninth Circuit, if they're at odds with each other, so the First Circuit might say, hey, yes, it does apply, and the Ninth Circuit might say, no, it does not, then that's where the Supreme Court might come in and settle that difference.
0: Okay. So just recently, uh, one of the cases, I don't remember which one, actually was put before the court. I think it's called Grant Certiorari, but don't quote me either because I'm not a lawyer. But then they chose not to take the case, and the significance of that was what? Chicken the can down the road? or? <laughs>
1: well, uh, yeah, I, I think that... Yeah, it's kicking the can down the road. They're going to let the courts play out. I've heard people say it may take up to 10 years to actually get back to the Supreme Court because they did just hear this Tennessee wine case a couple years ago. And so what that means is that you have some laws on the books that some might consider to be discriminatory that will that will remain in place. Um, in, until this case is, is perhaps further clarified by the courts.
0: Well, you're talking like a lawyer. You're doing a good job. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. And so today in a more practical application, and we're recording this on November 11th, Iowa uh, said that they will allow um, retailers to ship into Iowa, and that was that was a big change. Um, you know, talk about the significance of that.
1: Jeez, I'm embarrassed to say that I wasn't on my radar. Really? <laughs> yeah, I did not see that news. Um,
0: well, yet, I'll tell so. you, I think it's really significant. <laughs> well, compare Iowa and Idaho. Now that you know about Iowa, and we know the Idaho changed.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah. So, so anytime there's a new state added for retailers, that is kind of a a big deal. I, I think that since Grand Home happened in 2005, you've seen wineries just add 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 states, right? And and now they're at 47 states. Retailers have in in some ways gone backwards. Some states have kind of leveled down and and prohibited since since Grand Home, right? Have prohibited both out-of-state retailers and in-state retailers to ship, and that's fine as long as it's
0: even. Right. Sure. So the 47, meaning that domestic wineries can ship to 47 states, um, imported wines, which obviously are not manufactured here, have to go through an importer and importers are not allowed to direct ship. We have to go through the three-tier system. So the net-net is imported wines are don't fall under the same um, laws in that regard.
1: That is correct.
0: And then we come to reality. And reality is, and if you add Iowa to the number, I think it's now 10 states That allow retailer to consumer interstate shipping of wine because you knocked Idaho out a a month or so ago, and then um, Iowa today.
1: I I think it'd be fifteen because it was at sixteen, and then both Idaho and Nevada dropped off. We I'm happy to get into those, but um, and then if it if it's the case that Iowa added and and I miss that then then I think that would take it from 14 to 15 states for for retailers. Yeah.
0: Okay. So obviously uh, uh, there's a disconnect there. But the reality is, and I don't want to get anybody in trouble, a lot of retailers are shipping to a lot of states who are, you know, not cited as states where it is permitted for retailers to ship into. A lot of retailers are shipping to 20, 30, 40 states. And wh- I don't get the how does that work?
1: <laughs> well, you know, I think you see different types of business models. I mean, don't get me wrong, right? There are some 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 outfits that are just shipping illegally, right, to states that would require a license, with or that prohibit shipping. You know, people shipping where they shouldn't be. There's certainly some of that. I would make the case that that's not as expansive as as you know some would make it out to be. But but other companies employ strategies, right, that That leverage in state businesses, right? So you could, if you have a, like, you could ship to the 15 or or 14 or 15 retail states from California. But then if you want to get into New York and New York isn't a state that allows interstate shipments from California, you could open a retail store in New York and you could sell, you could move product to that store and sell products from that store through the same website. So it's sometimes you look at a site and you see that list of states and you don't always know exactly how it's working behind the scenes.
0: Right. You have to be pretty specific about who's shipping what to who where under what license. So for example, one, I can't remember everybody's model, but there's a whole bunch, 50 shades of gray, I imagine, on whether you have a physical retail store in the state or just a license, whether you are a third party aggregator and facilitator. That's the word like Amazon does. They don't actually take ownership of the product. It's just more of an affiliate marketing thing. Um, we've got GoPuff coming into the market now and they're, they're with their micro warehouses. So there's all kinds of very, on the theme and a bunch of players in it, Instacart and all the rest of that stuff, which kind of changed the landscape a little bit with with such subtleties that it's almost impossible to grasp and in fact I found to graph because I've tried to do that, make an Excel spreadsheet. I'm sure you guys do this all the time and I'm going to ask you, yeah, but no, really. So it's very difficult for me to give advice to my clients on what they can and cannot do. And at the end of the day, where I default to is um, these these are states where retailers are shipping to. I'm assuming that what they're doing is legal through whatever manner they do it. And if they allow us to, we can do promotions through them. And that's a way for my clients' brands to be sold through e-commerce. There was also an, an instance, you may recall, uh, about five years ago now, where... The FedEx and UPS, which are the two common carriers that legally carry and deliver uh, alcohol, the U.S. Postal Service doesn't do it, and that's under discussion. And I think it might even be included in this Omnibus Act, which is not the Omnibus. This is the Infrastructure Act. The Omnibus was the one that was three years ago <laughs> where the, where the taxes on wines and spirits and beer were dramatically reduced. But I digress. So the the point here is so many things are changing at that one time when those common carriers said, you know, we're gonna take a hard line here and we are not going to deliver into states where there's any risk to us. And then they told the retailers they can't do it. And there are a lot of people who had really made e-commerce a huge part of their business that were basically shut down, you know, in a heartbeat.
1: Overnight. Yep. Yes. I, I do remember that <laughs> and, and and that's becoming a big issue, right?
0: I mean are we, are we going back to that because I mean basically we're back to this the same situation. Hey, uh, somebody might say either at the state or federal level or DTB or regulatory level, hey, this is getting out of hand. you guys got to stop this. And I think what the retailers want, if I can speak for them, just as you say, an even playing field right and and, and an answer. <laughs> can I? Or can't I? And where? Uh, I don't want to run the risk of stepping over the line without knowing where the line is. Yeah, which is where you guys come in, right? Sure, sure, sure. We can
1: definitely help with that. I mean, I think uh, let's see, let the couple couple of points that I'll try to try to sprinkle in there. So, so number one, yes, the carrier issue is is big and important, and. We might probably want to get into fulfillment houses as well. So so what's happening is states are just starting to take a closer look at direct shipping. And they're starting to kind of analyze these reports that they're getting from FedEx and UPS. And what they're trying to do is just determine who the licensee is, right, for all of these packages that are coming into my state.
0: Who's who, who's the owner and who's liable and who has to pay the taxes? <laughs>
1: who owns the license? and who is paying the taxes correct right so they're trying to match these up and then and then if they see something that doesn't look right see some of the something that doesn't it it looks like a package is coming in without a license then they'll go to fedex and ups and say hey i think this business doesn't have a license can you please stop shipping um, from them into this state and so now you see the carriers keeping track of who holds licenses in, in which states, and, and they should be blocking, uh, for the most part, shipments from licensees that do not hold licenses where a license is required. Um, but then the next level on that is this fulfillment house issue, which is really blowing up right now is, is, and that happened in Tennessee this year, where I think it was on the order of 60, 70% of the packages say they're coming from a fulfillment warehouse
0: that may be located in the state of tennessee
1: well in california for example
0: oh okay okay so fulfillment house in california
1: right because a lot of california wineries right store their their products and 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 then these fulfillment houses do the pack and ship right from from their warehouse and the packages look like they're coming from those even though that winery that they're shipping on behalf of may hold a valid license in tennessee and does in most cases, the agency can't see who that licensee is, right? So they're looking for additional visibility there. And, you know, in a lot of cases, they've changed their laws to create a license for these fulfillment houses, and then a requirement that the fulfillment house report who's making the shipment. And in other cases, they, they don't require a license, but they do ask the fulfillment house to report the whole point of all of it is just to simply make sure that when packages come in that A, somebody holds a license, B, taxes are paid, and C, they're following the rules.
0: And that's what Avalara is all about, that it provides the service for these shippers to comply with the law as best they can and as best anybody knows because you guys are kind of the central repository for uh, how to do all this stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah yeah we're focused on tax and compliance and and we help we help suppliers mainly um but also marketplaces and retailers and and wholesalers in some cases but we help in both channels right both when products are moving through the three-tier system and there's a set of compliance requirements when you're moving through the three-tier system and in the direct-to-consumer channel and that's where it really gets complex in terms of sales and use tax calculation alcohol tax calculation filing of these tax um returns, registering products, all that, all the rules associated with it. Those are the the problems that we help solve for for people.
0: Okay. So you use the term marketplaces. Define yeah. that for me?
1: Yeah. So it you know, a, a fundamental concept in in the world of alcohol is that only licensees can sell. However, you go on to a Vivino or you know, and, you know, some of these other marketplaces or delivery apps, you mentioned Instacart, right? And in a lot of cases, they don't hold any licenses. So, in the eyes of the regulators, those platforms are effectively soliciting sales on behalf of licensees and kind of routing those orders to the, the licensees to accept and fulfill. And then the compliance obligation really is primarily on the licensee at that point. So that's what I mean when I say marketplace is, is an unlicensed. Uh, business that's taking orders or facilitating orders on behalf of licensees.
0: Okay. So when you say marketplaces, it's kind of like when I say third-party facilitators, Yeah. we used to say delivery within an hour. So further complicating the issue is part of it is interstate shipment. And how does that fit under the umbrella of e-commerce when e-commerce can happen both intra and interstate and depending on how the delivery goes whether it's done by the retailer himself with one of themselves with one of their people delivering into a house in a local area an apartment in a local area or through a common carrier not different sets of absolutely. I guess they are different sets of uh, rules and regulations that apply to each of those, and so that's where some of the refinement in these third-party facilitators and marketplaces comes, because the way they're structured allows them to do um, a certain number of.
1: Things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and I.
0: So there's e-commerce, mm-hmm. and then there's interstate shipment. And they're related, but one does not, you know, uh, overarch the other.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say, I think that's an important point. Like we think about e-com- e we t- we tend to use these terms pretty loose.
0: Equate them, and they're not. Yeah.
1: Yeah, we we, we use these terms loosely. And, and to me, e-commerce can, you know, in, in the world of alcohol, there's really at least two channels underneath that. One would be direct-to-consumer shipping. And, and to, to me, that's that's more typically from a winery, it's going across state lines. It's, you're, as you mentioned, it's using a FedEx or a UPS, a common carrier um, to deliver the package versus, you know, intrastate delivery, which a lot of these businesses and, and marketplace apps are using. Like if you look at like a Drizzly or, you know, an Instacart or whatever, they're, they're really making deliveries on behalf of local retailers that have the privilege of delivering within the state or within that geographical territory.
0: Okay. So a lot of the Italian people that I work with find find the whole three-tier system complicated. Interstate shipping is too. Well, in, in the presentation that I did, um, I, I kind of use an umbrella metaphor. Yeah, you know, here's here's the umbrella, which is the overarching thing, e-commerce, and the DTC direct. To consumer, I define as direct from a domestic winery to a consumer, either inter or in trust state, and try not to use DTC to describe sales from a retailer to a consumer, either in a state or us. Now, that's my definition, but the problem is that's not everybody else's definition. And so when you say DTC, and I think e-commerce, we're not necessarily talking the same thing. So it takes something that's already confusing and makes it more so when we're trying to make it more understandable.
1: Yeah, and, and you and I are in the thick of this, Steve, right? Like we, we, we see it and we talk about it all, all day long, and we don't even have common definitions. Imagine, imagine being a regulator or a legislator, right? And it, these things get confusing in there. It tends to be a lot of conflation of these different concepts and that's why i do think over the coming years you'll probably see some additional legislation to get a little bit clear on on some of these definitions and what's allowed
0: yeah i was i, I had the chance to read some of uh the the, the i don't know what you would call it um uh, minutes from whether they're hearing oops, sorry minutes from whether they're hearings or a lawsuit or whatever it happens to be. And it is so clear that many of the people who are on the deciding side have no concept of the three-tier system and all the legal things that apply and append to that. So it's kind of like the blind leading the blind or the blind leading the clueless. (laughs)
1: There's a lot of different concepts to keep track of, right? And, and I think you, you hear like legislators in particular get confused about what is a fulfillment house, what is a marketplace, what is a winery and a retailer, you know, and, and all these things that we, we use every day isn't apparent necessarily to the general public, maybe to your, your clients in Italy and, and to the legislators in particular.
0: Well stated. I, I'm I'm I, I'm a little bit cut to the heart of it. That and and everybody is well-meaning because the legislators are looking out for the things that are their responsibility, which is legal compliance, taxes, mostly TTB for making sure that the American population is protected from false advertising and bad product and all that kind of stuff. So one of the things that I've been getting involved in lately is to, just to add complexity to complexity. <laughs> Is the issue in e commerce, meaning I'm only talking about retailers now, using third party facilitators, who owns the data, meaning who owns the relationship with the consumer? And I've always known it was there and it was an issue, but in one of the interviews I did with someone a couple of weeks ago, uh, actually it was, I won't even name the name because I don't want to get anybody in trouble here, but they were distinguishing between a third party facilitator, which helps sell bottles, and another service where the individual retail store owns the customer relationship they have the data and they can then remarket to those people and that helps him build his business so that becomes really really significant and it's i think i have found it is overlooked so i've i in the slide i showed at the at the conference i put e-commerce into like six different buckets just you know to really con- confuse everybody i thought it was simplifying things but really in my mind from a retailer's point of view There's there's only two buckets. Who owns the data? And if it's the retailer, that implies and and infers and confers certain rights and responsibilities. And if it doesn't, then those things change. At the end of the day, I think uh, if I can speak for you and Tom, the NAWR and the idea of, of freeing some of this stuff up. The original one for free the grapes is let us compete. Let the individual retailers, we want to keep the individual retailers in business in the U.S. They perform a really important service of advising and counseling consumers. You know, I'm having spaghetti. What should I have for, you know, for the wine with that? As well as convenience, where a individual store in comparison to uh, an online or virtual store is differentiated is an inventory. Obviously, there's physical limitation on how many SKUs or bottles can fit into an individual store, and we have the ultimate. The what do they call it? The infinite aisle online. The long tail. Can you comment on that?
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's an important issue. Yeah, about who owns the data, and 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 it's tough because I think if you think about it, if I if I put the compliance lens on it, right, the, and you put yourself in the shoes of the regulators, they think that the licensee, aka the retailer, is making this sale, right, and so from their perspective, why would the retailer? not own that data. But at the same time, yeah, I, I imagine that some of these third-party marketers or, or marketplaces may put restrictions on what they're able to do in terms of remarketing to these customers. So that's a tricky one. And yeah, that that may play out in the future. I, I wouldn't be surprised.
0: Okay. You dodged that one. Here's another one. So. <laughs> Thank you for that. So when... Uh... One other complication... Uh, okay, so I, I have a, a client in London, and we were exploring e-commerce, who can do what. And they couldn't look at that data because the e-commerce providers look for your um, IP address. And if you're in Connecticut, it only shows you the inventory that's available in Connecticut, which might be a completely different set of items that are available in Colorado, California. and I can see why consumers get um, confused, but more importantly, upset. Meaning, they taste a wine that they've had somewhere, and then they say, "Go to their retail store." No, we don't carry it. They can't order it in their state, and they can't have it delivered, and that gets them all frustrated. That's not cool either.
1: <laughs> right? Yeah. No. And you raised an important point earlier, right? Which is that when we're talking about these forty-seven states that allow wineries to ship, we're talking domestic wineries, and and we're talking in a lot of these states, especially the ones that have changed or passed laws recently, that they do put a restriction on the making sure that those products were produced by that winery. So what does that mean that imported wines are excluded, right? So imported wines just do not have that same level of access. And from a consumer standpoint, yeah, if they're looking to get a direct shipment of imported wine, you're going to have a really hard time. You're going to be Primarily limited to those states, those fourteen or fifteen states that allow retailers to ship, assuming the importer moves it to a retailer right makes that sale through a wholesaler or directly you're limited to those states, and so it's it's tough sledding right now for imported products
0: well there's one thing that happened that I thought was particularly telling i don't know if it if people realized what was going on and planned for it to happen, whatever. When uh, that omnibus bill passed back in 2018, I think, in December of 2018, where federal excise taxes on wine, beer, and spirits were dramatically reduced by 90%. That didn't get a lot of visibility to the general public, but it changed the financial calculations of everybody in the business. And it freed up quite a bit of margin for those who were able to follow where it was and how do you get a piece of it. But what I thought was particularly interesting those reduced taxes were applied not only to domestic wineries and spirit producers, distilleries, and breweries, but also imported. That was the first time that one of those laws took into account imported wines and spirits. Do you think that was planned, or did, was that just something that happened and nobody was paying attention?
1: Oof, man, I don't know if I am an expert on that one in in, in terms of how that
0: played out. Well, let's speculate. <laughs> well,
1: I, I mean, I know that there's NABI, the the you know the the National Association of Beverage Importers, and 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 they're they're well connected, and and they certainly have a purpose, and and they're they're at the table, right, in in a lot of these discussions. And I know that there was quite a bit of collaboration on on that the Craft Beverage Modernization Act, I think that's what it was called. And so so presumably, yeah, importers were at the table, and that that included and but but i i i'm speculating i don't have a lot of background on how that played out
0: yeah well i i'm i'm reading into it that there's a crack it's a little one maybe it's just a hairline crack but at least the, the idea is now on the table that and it, it is that something that can then be pointed to that okay this was made and it applied to these people why doesn't this do
1: it. Yeah, and and this is where I'm also not an expert. <laughs> I'm getting out outside of my depths, but I've heard others make a case that, you know, certain international trade agreements like WTO right might might have a an issue with with some of these laws that don't allow for the imported products, but, but I sh- I really shouldn't go there because I'm not an expert.
0: Well, we're all kind of getting into that now the resultant edge of that with, you know, cutting the uh, tariffs Punitive tariffs for the UK and the Scotch industry just got hammered. I heard they were down like 25%. It was a number I saw uh, because the taxes were applied just to those things and had nothing to do with the issue at hand, which was I think that one was Airbus. No, it was the UK thing. So I don't think it was Airbus. They had another thing that somebody was pissed off at somebody else about. And they said, yeah, so, okay. Uh England. Uh Scotland. Yeah, let let's put a tax on Scotch. <laughs> That'll hurt them. In France, so we'll put a tax on wine. Yeah, that that that's what'll hurt them. And and then it, it kind of just all escalated to not make any sense at all. And yet here they were. So they just removed the UK thing. Does that uh, or the UK punitive tax on uh spirits? How does that affect Avalera, and how do you guys adapt to changes like that?
1: Uh, well, I mean, first of all, we're, we're primarily focused with state issues, st- state regulatory compliance. And so I, I know that this has been the whole tariff issue. It's been a really big issue, especially for groups like the Distilled Spirits Council that, that they've been hard at work. And, and so it's good to see those get lifted because I know that that was challenging for, for them and for, for a lot of their members and for just a lot of distilleries. Around the around the country, and so
0: and people who couldn't get the product they want, and we're now paying you know twenty five percent more. Yep,
1: yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. That has been an ongoing challenge. So I think there's a lot of relief and a lot of, from a lot of um, people about those those getting removed.
0: Okay, I'm going to ask you a question that's related to what we're talking about, but not smack in your wheelhouse or my wheelhouse. We've had COVID, made some incredible. Changes in the industry, particularly in the on-premise, but now you know, on things are not coming back to normal, but th- they are progressing forward. So, where just today was reported, inflation was six point eight percent. I don't know what period of time, whether it's a month or something, but it's a significant thing now. We never had to deal with it. We haven't had to deal with it for thirty years. Um, it's going to have a dramatic, as dramatic an impact, I think, on the beverage alcohol industry as the CBMA did in reducing taxes. Do you have any ideas? Can you put in your crystal ball and say, what impact is inflation going to have in the industry?
1: Oh, man, no. I, I, I would probably... Not touch
0: that one? I would probably
1: <laughs> stay away from that. I, <laughs> I'm going to be light on the economic theory stuff. Um, so, no, I would probably stay away.
0: Well, I will put this into the conversation. I'll ask my own question, and that is I've seen this happen, that because of the CBMA drop, and because the federal tax is put into the hierarchy, if you will, if you're going down of you know, here's your uh, x works price at the factory, and here's your you know, latent price to the importer, importer to distributor, distributor to retailer, and all that. If you lower the number higher up on that chain, it frees up a lot of margin and movement to put things in. Now we've got inflation coming back at the end. There's a lot of people that are especially exporters that heard about CBMA, haven't looked into it, don't know about it, and should be.
1: Yeah, I think it did have a substantial impact. I I'm not going to comment on how inflation is going to kind of reverse some of the things that that put into place. But
0: Okay. You're really making me work. I'm here. sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I, I had mentioned earlier, I listened to the webinar you and Tom did a couple of weeks. It was like early October. So I thought it was great. Same kind of thing. You guys tend to agree a lot more, I think. We
1: tend to agree on, on quite quite a lot of issues. Yes.
0: Okay. So now put your, okay, here's what I think as the GM of an important part of this whole equation, out of what we just talked about, somebody listening, what's the most important thing that we talked about that they can take uh, action on to improve their business?
1: Well, I think that this marketplace issue is is pretty big, right? I, I do think that you're seeing massive investment when you look at uber
0: just saw mini bar delivery got bought they didn't say how much but you know i'm sure it had at least six zeros yeah
1: yeah yeah mini bar reserve bar you saw uber acquire drizzly you saw vivino raise lots of money i mean there's been a Quite a bit of um, investment coming in, and, and it does feel like that's kind of shifting, where where some of these platforms are going to start to become a little bit more dominant, and and I think the industry is going to have a little bit of catch up to do in terms of how how regulation works. And one thing that we talk, that we get a lot of questions about in our business is these market. There was another Supreme Court case, Wayfair versus South Dakota that changed a lot of things related to sales tax collection. And now marketplaces in in almost all states have an obligation to collect sales tax um, above a certain threshold. And so how that kind of impacts the alcohol regulation and how the money flows and who pays taxes is getting a little bit complicated and hard to understand for people. And so we've been making a point of, of, Of getting a lot of blog posts and webinars. And we're going to actually be doing one on this particular topic in December, I believe, to just help educate both marketplaces and licensees that are participating in marketplaces about how to do this compliantly without putting your business at
0: risk. Cool. So why don't you give us your email address and tell our listeners where they can go to participate or listen in on, on these webinars and maybe hear some of the ones like the one you, you did with Tom last month?
1: Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Uh, my my email is jeff.carroll at avalera.com, J-E-F-F dot C-A-R-R-O-L-L at avalera.com. And, and avalera.com, we've got, you know, blog and webinar resources and all kinds of, you know, tools that can be used to help understand this stuff. So so that's a great destination. Is just kind of going to our website and browsing those tools.
0: And that's my recommendation to a lot of people. And there's so much to unpack. You'll never understand it all, um, but at least you'll be able to get straight answers of the most current information on <laughs> the legislation and how things are done there. And that's a big challenge because if you look it up in Google, it might be something from three months ago. Well, you know, yesterday you couldn't ship to Iowa.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then and then another thing I would say is we have a partnership with Wine Institute, and and we kind of um, co-host and maintain this compliance rules portal, and that's at WineInstitute.compliancerules.org, and that's where you're going to see state by state breakdowns of all the rules, how to get licensed, the the returns that you need to file, and any developments. Right, anytime there's a change to a state you're gonna have a state alert there and that's a free resource. Um, And so that is for wineries, right? But it's got a ton of information on there about how to comply and what the rules are and all of that stuff, it's a great resource. Good. Say it again. What, what, what was it? WineInstitute.compliancerules.org, or you can just get there from WineInstitute.org. wineinstitute.org.
0: Wine Institute. Yeah, I've I, I visited a couple of times. They have some really good maps that list uh, state state uh, sales taxes, and uh, you know, some on uh, where what states you can sell wine in supermarkets. That's always a lot of question and a point of an issue of of interest from a lot of our export. Uh, producers because, you know, in some countries like UK, most of the wine is coming through supermarkets. That's not the case in the US and specifically it's illegal in New York. So that's why I try and tell people, look, there's things you can do in California that are illegal in New York and vice versa. It's a state-based thing. This is not one country. It's 52 different regulatory entities.
1: That's right. Exactly right.
0: That's reality. And everyone listening, that's what we have to deal with. (laughs) Okay. Jeff, I want to thank you for participating and recording this with me. It's been illuminating and we probably made a couple of mistakes there. So I... Um, I'm going to give a disclaimer here. We're not lawyers. (laughs) We're just talking about stuff that we read. And that's interesting related to the wine business in the U.S.
1: Steve, thanks so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. It's, It's always a pleasure talking to you.
0: So that was Jeff Carroll, GM of Avalara. We'll see you soon on the circuit.
1: Sounds great. Thanks so much.
0: This is Steve Ray. Thanks again for listening on behalf of the Italian Wine Podcast.